Welcome back to Money Multiple, where we explore trends, topics, and pathways for private capital investors in Asia to deploy capital and maximize returns. In this episode, we will dive deeper into the education sector in Asia, which is a very important and exciting opportunity for private capital. Asia is home to some of the world's fastest-growing economies and an aspirational and growing population of 4.5 billion. Megatrends such as urbanization, a rising middle class, globalization of the workforce, particularly in the services sector, and the impact of technology are driving demand for high-quality education. In recent years, the education landscape has seen significant evolution. Digital and online learning, the emergence of regional and global champions, particularly in the early years and K-12 segments, are two trends of note. There is a growing focus on continuing education and lifelong learning. On the other hand, governments need to navigate important issues such as access and affordability, holistic development, as well as funding, which means investors need to be aware of an ever-evolving regulatory landscape. To navigate this interesting topic, I am pleased to be joined by Abhinav Mithal, Managing Director, Link Education Services, and Rishi Gajendra, EY's Education Sector Leader for Southeast Asia. Rishi, let me start with you. Can you take us through where the transaction activity is and what are the markets of interest for private capital as we look into 2023? Sure. And thanks for having me on this podcast, Luke. And let me set context with a few data points to help us with this. In 2020 and 2021, the total deal volume in APAC for education and edtech was about $15 billion. And the three largest markets comprising that was China, India, and Australia. Now, these two years were all-time highs, and the corresponding number in 2022, the most recent full year, was about $6 billion. It's worth calling out that historically, about 60 to 70% of the total deal volume in the APAC region was in the China region, but the regulatory changes that occurred around 2020 have certainly impacted that, and over the last one to two years, that 60 to 70% has decreased to about a third of deal volume coming from China out of the total in APAC region. Now, beyond the big three markets, so as to speak, it's important for investors to track a few other markets, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Singapore come to mind. Vietnam, for example, has witnessed emergence of multi-sector education platforms, large education companies that operate in segments such as schools, universities, and the edtech sector. Malaysia, on the other hand, for about a decade, has seen private equity investment in universities as well as K-12 schools. Singapore presents pockets of opportunity for investors to track and keep an eye on. It is perhaps the most well-developed education market in the Southeast Asia region. Thanks, Rishi. So it looks like there are a few pockets of opportunity to invest in across the region. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned regulations. Can we unpack that a little bit? What are some of the recent changes in the regulatory environment in the APAC region? Sure, Luke. And certainly regulations play and policy play a very important role in influencing the sector. We've seen this play out in the China market, where a ban on for-profit operations in after-school tutoring impacted the sector significantly over the last 18 to 24 months. But let me pick a few other examples to outline this. It's worth acknowledging that there are markets, there are geographies where regulations are favorable in terms of for-profit operations, in terms of foreign investment, and Vietnam and Malaysia, for example, are two such geographies where all education subsectors 
are open to foreign investor participation and for-profit operations. On the other side, contrasting that is Indonesia, where for-profit K-12 and higher ed has not been historically allowed. But we've seen changes in the tertiary sector over the last four to five years. And currently, foreign branch campus setup is permitted, subject to certain restrictions, them being located in special economic zones. And of course, the university that sets up the campus needs to be in a certain tier of ranking. In terms of more recent changes, I think India is certainly a market which has seen a fair bit of regulatory and policy changes. The national education policy was released about a year and a half ago, and there are several changes in that policy which are positive for the sector. The emphasis on early years education, pretty ambitious targets as far as school participation is concerned, and emphasis on critical learning rather than rote mugging are all welcome changes to the policy. I think the last point is on the edtech sector. In the Indian context, the education ministry came out with a guideline, or in fact, a warning, essentially about student financing schemes, aggressive ad campaigns, essentially any mechanism to attract and lure customers and parents. And they've asked the tech companies to curb these unfair practices. In response to this, the tech organizations have organized themselves quite well and responded by highlighting that they are taking steps to curb these practices. In summary, regulations continues to be important. We do track the changes in regulations across markets so that we can give the right advice for private investors in this space. Now, uh, let's shift gears and talk about the various segments of education, starting with K-12 schools. How has this segment evolved and where do you see the growth opportunities? Sure. Look, historically, with respect to K-12 schools in the Asia-Pacific region, growth has been through premium or high-priced international schools. Essentially, these schools targeted expat families, they targeted wealthy locals, and we have seen that play out over the last decade. Over the last few years, an interesting change is that there are the increased prevalence of bilingual and dual curriculum schools. These operate at mid-market price levels. And the target segment here is mid-income to upper-mid-income locals who aspire for globalized education for their children and also aspire for a pathway to overseas higher education once they finish school. So we see this as a continuing trend. And the growth of these bilingual and dual curriculum schools across emerging Asia is a trend to stay. Markets such as Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand have all witnessed these these sorts of bilingual and dual, dual curriculum schools. And this will drive the next wave of growth. And I think it's worth mentioning that there are still pockets of growth opportunities in the premium segment as well across markets. But the majority of the growth is likely to be in the mid-price and dual curriculum and bilingual segment. Abhinav, your business focuses on the tertiary segment. With borders now fully reopened, how are international student flows trending and how does it impact the higher education segment? Hi, Luke. After a couple of really tough years, international student market has resurged in the second half of 2022 going into now in 2023. For example, student numbers are back up in many markets, like the UK, they have the numbers are actually higher than what it was in 2019. Many other markets like Australia, Canada, US are seeing numbers coming close to the 2019 levels. And what this has done is that it has effectively given a shot in the arm to a sector which was otherwise stagnating 
what has also happened during this time is that profile of demand has shifted away from China and more towards the Indian subcontinent, the South Asian market. And 2022 is a landmark year because for the first time, subcontinental students have become the largest incoming cohort or student community in all of the key markets like Australia, UK, Canada, US. At the same time, universities are also looking at the region, Southeast Asia, South Asia and other parts more closely to see what they can do in country because they feel that's a good hedging factor or a hedging uh, opportunity to have some operations within these countries as well. So overall, this 2022 resurgence has shaken up the sector. It has given a fresh boost of life and it has also in, uh, given birth to some interesting business models, new business models in the space of student recruitment, student enablement, as well as partnerships for program delivery, a space that we operate in. Now, EdTech was front and center during the pandemic, but we have seen a cooling off in 2022 as physical classrooms have resumed. Can you unpack the various segments of EdTech and what has been the impact on each of these? Sure. We use the term EdTech as an umbrella definition of tech-enabled solutions catering to the education sector. We categorize it into three parts. Number one is technology-enabled solutions targeted at educational institutes, essentially B2B solutions for schools, universities, learning centers, etc. Number two is the K-12 edtech platform or the school-age edtech platforms targeted at school-going children, either through content or through delivery of classes online. And the third category is essentially higher education and upskilling related edtech, which are online programs targeted at college young adults as well as working professionals. Now, with respect to valuations, there are two points to keep in mind. Number one, 2020 and 2021 saw a heightened amount of deal activity in the tech space. As a result of that, valuations increased dramatically in many cases. And over the last year or so, we are seeing correction to what was built up through the COVID years. The second point, however, is perhaps more relevant and important, which is there are certain business models in the edtech space which benefited through COVID. A great example of that is K-12 edtech. During school closures, during lockdowns, many families preferred to send their children to online programs. But over the last 9 to 12 months, with in-center or in-classroom learning resuming, We've seen certainly a slowdown in adoption of these online classes, recalibration of their growth expectations, and they've been acutely impacted in many instances in terms of funding, in terms of their growth trajectory. So if you break up the various segments of edtech, it is this one, the K-12 edtech segment that has been impacted the most in terms of valuation. To some extent, the correction we've seen in valuations is also a function of what we've seen in the wider tech landscape. And over the next one to two years, it'll be interesting to see how things pan out for the other segments, where there's still a fair amount of investor interest and activity and growth as well. And just to add to that, I would say the other two categories that Rishi pointed out, which is the B2B solutions uh, could be in the form of, let's say, student management systems, in-classroom technology, learning management systems, even content-based, in-school content or in-university content-based solutions. I think those segments uh, have a lot of potential and will continue to grow because uh, what COVID has shown is the increased need for digital infrastructure and all formats of education. So 
those segments are very positive. Tertiary education has definitely embraced the changes of COVID and has actually continued with it, opening up, using technology to open up a new and faster growing student target market, which is amongst the continued learners and the professionals, and even using online mode of delivery for enhancing the experience of more traditional school leavers who get into university either as an international student or a domestic student. So these segments continue to be still enjoying some of those benefits of accelerated adoption of technology during COVID. But yes, I think Rishi's point on the K-12 sector, specifically those targeting students directly, that is a segment which will be a bit more challenged. It appears that these are challenging times. Abhinav, as an operator in the sector, what has been your experience and what in your mind are the key focus areas for management teams in edtech? I think that's a great question, Luke. To my peers and colleagues in the industry, I would say you need to go back to the fundamentals of building a solid business economics and not looking at funding and valuations as a source to survive, but as a source to grow. Now, what does that mean? It means that your underlying value proposition to their customer, which is in terms, in this case, students should be a great experience, a rewarding experience for them. But at the same time, you are able to drive value from those services. That means your customer lifetime value has to be a number that can support the economics of your cost of customer acquisition and delivery costs. A lot of business models have come up where the revenue or the fees or the customer lifetime value has been substantially subsidized thanks to fairly free capital that was available and a lot of money was being invested in acquiring customers. And if you are such a business, you will have a tough time going forward. Businesses which have managed to reduce their cost of customer acquisition at least to below 50% of student value or revenue have a chance of survival. Otherwise, it's going to be a difficult journey forward for them. Rishi, I wanted to talk about a currently hot topic, which is how artificial intelligence will change the world of education. Chat GPT has taken the world by storm. Enabler or killer? And certainly that's a very topical question, given what you've seen over the last few months. And perhaps it's a bit early to comment on whether educational institutes are going to embrace this and integrate it with their curriculum plans, or they will look to uh, enforcing limits on the usage of tools such as ChatGPT. Um, if I was to take a step back, look, education is ultimately about the interaction of teachers and students. And even before the advent of generative AI technologies, basic learning content was and is free, available for either free or at a very low cost on the internet in a variety of mediums. So to that extent, in the current stage, I will attempt to take a stand and highlight that ChatGPT will enhance the quality of learning. It will help and act as an aid for both learners and educators. And it's hard to imagine a scenario where it will be a killer uh, to the education or the edtech sector. What I'll add to that is that it's definitely uh, made things very interesting for operators like ourselves and our university partners because this technology currently is free format, free to use, and it means that we need to ensure it is not being used in the wrong fashion or giving unfair advantage to students. So that aspect of technology also needs to be considered. And uh, this is very new, right? I mean, three months old, four months old. But I think responsible use of artificial intelligence and related technologies is the need. And that is what will help enhance the quality of learning rather than 
create further distortions uh, because, you know, if, if these technologies are being used in an unfair fashion, it's not benefiting the students and it's not leading to the desired outcome in education. So I would just add that one comment uh, to what Rishi just mentioned. Abhinav and Rishi, it's been a pleasure to have you both on. Before we close the session, what is the one piece of advice that you would give our audience? Education as a sector and tech as well, in these times of macroeconomic uncertainty, I do believe that it presents an attractive opportunity for investors. Let me substantiate that with two examples. Number one is schools or K-12 platforms. These have traditionally known to be resilient to contractions in consumer spend, to high inflation environments. The second example is higher education, which in many cases, and to an extent upskilling as well, in many cases, these segments have been counter-cyclical to economic downturns. They have performed well when the overall economy has not performed that well. All things considered, there are certainly many pockets of opportunity for investors to spend time on, identify the right segment and the winning business model and operator to back in these times as well. From my side, I sort of reinforce the point. Education is uh, one of the few sectors which is counter-cyclical. If you are an investor or an operator looking to expand in this sector, this is as good a time as any. Uh, it has that capability to withstand turbulent economic times. And of course, I would go back and point out that underlying business has to be chosen carefully. What's your business model? What are the basic business economics? What is it that you're promising your customers? And how will you deliver that in an economically sustainable fashion? So if anything, this is the best time to invest in education. This is what I would say. Thank you, Rishi. Thank you, Abhinav. 